Hi, I'm Paul Johnson. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Life Support. So the Baptists and the Catholic Church, all of those people surrounded me and gave me a jump start to healing. And I have to tell you now, now the first year, I don't remember a darn thing. I, 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 you're in a fog, you're a zombie. Um, the first five years, I put a smile on my face and I was crying inside. Uh, the second five years, the shroud was lifting and I was pretty, I was kind of normal, kind of getting to normal. And after 10 years, um, Eric, Eric died 11 years ago tomorrow. And about a year ago, I really felt that I had reached a point where I can live in the present right now. The name of this program is Life Support, and our goal is to provide hope if you're going through pain and suffering in your life. I'm your host, Pastor Paul Johnson from Ridgewood Church in Minnetonka, Minnesota. And for the next two programs, we're going to do something a little different. We're going to hear from a trauma survivors panel at a recent life support conference hosted by our partner, Five Stone Media. Five Stone Media Executive Director Steve Johnson is the moderator for this very honest discussion, and you'll meet three very brave individuals who want to share their story so that others can begin to find hope. For two of these individuals, you've heard parts of their story. We'll hear from Rick Loftus talking about the death of his infant son and the pain and tragedy that followed, and then more of the story of Barbara Vernas, who you met last week. But we start with Kim Harms talking about the tragic suicides of both her mother and her son. So here now is the survivor panel at the recent Life Support Conference. I want to talk today about um, another loss I suffered through suicide, another time my world was shattered into two, and that was when my mother took her own life when I was 17. So suicide has touched me twice. Um, my mom was an amazing woman. She was kind and caring, compassionate, beautiful. She had these gorgeous hands. She was a hand model. Uh, she was also bipolar. And um, she suffered quite a bit through bipolar disease back in the 50s. Uh, the treatments were not so great. It was shock treatments without anesthesia and a lot of other things. So she really went through, she suffered quite a bit with her disease. And she got so low one time after her divorce from my father uh, that she drove all three of us kids onto a railroad track and uh, waited for the train to come. And um, fortunately, uh, when it did come, uh, she just changed her mind and drove off and then got treatment right away. And I think the rest of the world would think that maybe she's not such a great mom, but they would be completely wrong. My mother was the best. I get goosebumps thinking about my mom, the best mom ever. She taught me I was enough in Jesus, which is an incredible lesson to learn at an early age. Uh, she, she loved me so much, you couldn't believe it. She was funny and witty, and when she was in her manic stage, she was manic for the Lord. She was manic for Jesus. So really, she was just the best mom ever. And uh, when I was six, my father called her. Uh, they were divorced. My father called her and uh, mentioned that the, uh, the drug thalidomide had been uh, shown to cause uh, birth defects in children. And I was born without hands. And of course, she was a hand model, so that was uh, near and dear to her heart. And um, she was so devastated uh, by the news that she may have taken something uh, that was given to her uh, um, that could have caused damage to me as a mother. I know it was guilt, that guilt feeling, but she was so devastated. She went, uh, was committed into the Cincinnati State Mental Institution uh, where she stayed the rest of her life. 
Um, my, my dad came, picked the three kids up. He was in the Navy, drove us to Washington, D.C., dropped us off with my stepmother, who was pregnant. She had just, he'd just been remarried. And he had forgotten to tell my stepmother before they got married that he had three children. And, of course, when she did find out, she was never expecting to have to take care of us. And she was pregnant, so you can imagine things were not good. My dad went on board ship right after that. Um, so when, my, when we heard that my mother passed away, I was 17, uh, first of all, no one would tell us what happened to her. No one would tell us how she died. We were kind of trying to figure that out, and we were getting pretty close. There was this aura of shame and guilt and silence. Uh, and what I remember is we went into a, there was no church service. My mother, like I said, loved the Lord more than you can imagine. There was no church that would hold a service for her because she had taken her own life. So all I remember is a 17-year-old with the only love of my life, which was my mother, in a dark funeral home where shame just covered that place like a blanket. In fact, we were choking on it. People spoke in hushed tones. Uh, and of course, I had a lot of guilt too because if it wasn't for me, she, in my mind, you know, she would never have gone into the hospital. It's because I was born without fingers that she, you know, she had died, which is what you do when you know we have things like this happen to you. So you can imagine, I left the church uh, at this. I didn't leave the Lord because I, my mom, put that love right into my heart. But I left organized religion, left the church uh, at that time. Um, so when Eric died. Uh, 35 years later, uh, I was a member of Brean Baptist Church, proud member. I love that church. Uh, things were completely different. First of all, when you have one death that's unresolved, it comes back. So there was a double whammy when, when Eric died. Who? What's the common denominator between two suicides? Me, right? I'm his mother. I should have prevented Eric. My mom died because of me, so there was a lot of stuff going on in my head at that time, so I was a mess. I was just a hot mess, really. Uh, and, but the pastors at Berean, Pastor Roger Thompson, if you know him, uh, what a great man, and his wife Joanne, were so good. The rest of the, all of the pastors were wonderful. They were open, they were kind, they were caring. There was no shame at the death of my son. Not only that, but Eric went to, he was a, a he had gone off to Columbia University, so he was away at college, but St. Thomas Academy, which is a Catholic all-boys military academy right down here in Mendota Heights, they brought busloads of cadets in their dress uniforms to our church. The band played. Uh, the teachers were there. This was a school day. This was not, this was a school day. Who does that? And when Eric's um, casket, we were at the end of the service, we were going back. Uh, you know, with his casket, hundreds of young men in their dress uniforms, tears running down their face and starting to run down mine, I think if I'm not careful, but we walked down with Eric's casket and they saluted him as we walked that casket down. The church was packed. There were people in the back rooms. So many people to honor the life of my son, which is what we need when we're healing. We need just the honor of that, that child, even though it was a suicide. This is a Catholic church and the Baptist church together. You know, what the heck, right? <laughs> they were together. And so I want to credit 
my pastor is a Berean, and it was a whole church, because I mean, I was calling them. I wanted to know where my son was. I mean, I was calling them. I was really a mess. And the, church, and the pastors and the laity at St. Thomas Academy, so the Baptist and the Catholic Church, all of those people surrounded me and gave me a jump start to healing. And I have to tell you now, now the first year, I don't remember a darn thing. I, 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 you're in a fog, you're a zombie. Um, the first five years, I put a smile on my face and I was crying inside. Uh, the second five years, the shroud was lifting and I was pretty, I was kind of normal, kind of getting to normal. And after 10 years, um, Eric, Eric died 11 years ago tomorrow. And about a year ago, I really felt that I had reached a point where I can live in the present right now. The shroud is, is mostly gone. It's, it's rarely there. Um, and I have six grandchildren, and they, they did not lose their grandmother with Eric's death. I remembered what my nephew said. Don't let your children feel they're not enough. I worked so hard at that. And I really have to, to just thank the, all the pastors for not only allowing me to heal and live in the present and enjoy my grandchildren and have a full life, but also let me recover from my, my mother's death, those just together. So I have to thank the pastors, and certainly I think I can stand up for an example of how it was done very well. So I'm really, really grateful. So thank you. My name's Rick. Whoops, I talk very loud. Um, July of 1995, my now ex-wife and I had a bouncing baby boy named Calvin DeForest Loftus, and people would look at us and say, oh, some family name? And the Calvin was after the Calvin and Hobbes comic that Bill Watterson <laughs> drew. And it was, it's either ironic or heartbreaking that Watterson stopped drawing that comic strip at the end of December when my son died. And his middle name, which was DeForest, is um, Humphrey Bogart's middle name. So we wanted, my wife and I were going to have lots of kids. We wanted to have fun with them, and that's, that was the example of it. In December of 1995, he was shaken to death by his daycare provider. And in 1995, shaken baby syndrome didn't exist. Um, crib death was what it was called. And um, the two real immediate benefits that came out of Calvin's death was um, we donated his organs. Six little babies were saved. And the... His medical case in the Hennepin County prosecutors, and the, they made case law out of his death that helped to further the legal case of shaken baby syndrome. So there's some real benefits of it. So it's 24 years ago, and the scary thing for somebody that just went through it two years ago or 11 years ago is that it never stops hurting. And I don't intend, I've learned a few things here today. I didn't know that my brain was rewired in December of 1995. Um, but the interesting thing is it's been 24 years, and it wasn't until two years ago. No, you said that. <laughs> Thank you. It wasn't until two years ago that I acknowledged that I had been through a trauma. Part of it was because, and, and by the way, in the context of what we're talking about today, uh, you couldn't have had a more godless family. Uh, I didn't need God because I had Rick. I was my own God very successful financially, materially. Um, when we left the hospital that day, my wife looked at me and said, I want to have more kids. We had three more kids in the next seven years. Everything went fine. It was going wonderfully. And I think that a couple of people introduced the concept that I'd been through trauma. And trauma was something when two soldiers are laying in a ditch and you watch your buddy's face getting blown off or whatever. And it wasn't until two years ago 
um, where I've been walking pretty steadily with the Lord for a long time. He introduced me through a series of events, just reading a report, and I saw the word trauma, and I just broke down and cried because I realized 22 years before that I'd been through this awful trauma. So um, that's the part of what's happened. Uh, the, after um, 13 years in, in 2008, um, I began drinking and gambling, um, got bored with the amount of money that I was making and the lifestyle that I had. If, if you ask me why questions about what I did to my life, I just look at you and say, I, don't know, I can't answer why questions because it sounds so ridiculously stupid to me right now. So I'll just give you the what of what happened. Um, became an alcoholic, became addicted to gambling, uh, destroyed my life, walked out of my family, almost made him homeless, took money from everybody that loved me, um, landed face first in a treatment center 11 years ago. Uh, the one thing I can say to you is that I've, I'm a recovered alcoholic and I've been sober for 11 years, but I tell guys that I mentor now that if somebody offered you my 11 years of sobriety for 25 cents, don't buy it because it's overpriced because there was no emotional sobriety, no emotional intelligence or um, stability or anything like that. Um, and I subscribe to the um, Alcoholics Anonymous concept of an anonymous higher power God because that was safe. But now I realize, isn't it amazing that as humans, we puny humans can take the most omnipotent being in the universe who wants to love us, and if we go, no, nope, got no time for you, we can block his love. I did it for 52 years. And the, the bone-crushing thing for me is that I don't regret anything about the way my life has gone. I wouldn't change a thing for you to be able to sit here and share this with you guys today. Not a thing, because I realized that for 52 years, he was right here, ready for me. As soon as I was ready to turn around and say, I need you, I want you, I love you. That's what's happened in my life. And he had a plan. Even when I crashed and burned, my 11 years have looked like three years of the anonymous higher power God, because God says, I'm going to let you get comfortable with me as a concept. Then I'm going to introduce you to my son. It's really going to blow your mind. Then I'm going to let you sit in prison for two and a half years. I'm not making this up. You can't make it up. And you're going to study my word. You're going to fellowship. You're going to help some guys in there. And you're going to get out, and your life is going to get real, real. It's going to be very rich. But you've got a lot of work to do for me. And that's why I wouldn't change a thing about why I'm sitting here. Even the death of my son contributed to everything. So I have to tell you, one of the most interesting questions I've ever been asked about my son was, uh, I was sharing this with Wendy at lunch, a waiter, I used to be in the restaurant business, and a waitress that worked for me looked at me and said, so, and this was about three years after he died, she said, um, when you think of Calvin, has he aged, or is he still five and a half months old? And I said, no, he's still 24 years, and he's still five, five and a half months old. So that's my story. So, Gosh, for an inner uh, introvert like me, this is hard. Um, I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor. Um, I know all the verses. I have never, I don't remember not being um, a Christian. I don't remember ever not talking to God when I was five. My childhood was miserable. I'm not going to tell you about that. But um, I remember at five talking to God and saying, I know you see this, and I know you know what's happening, and I know you'll make it right. Well, uh, two years ago, yes, tomorrow, uh, my oldest child died. He was 38. Uh, he was 
a wonderful, warm, funny, uh, witty, intelligent, uh, just a, a great human being. He was exceptional in a lot of ways. Uh, he had a normal childhood. I figured the best thing I could do as a parent was to do everything my parents didn't do um, and to not do the things they did. Uh, he was loved, dearly loved. He had an accident at seven uh, with some physical injuries. He had plastic surgery to his face, and but within a month, he had changed. Our happy-go-lucky little boy uh, was now anxious and depressed. Uh, we watched him. We talked to his doctor. Uh, Knowing what I know now, I would have intervened a lot, a lot sooner and paid more attention. But at 13, he started drinking. I didn't know that. I had a new baby in the house. Um, he seemed fine. Uh, he had the usual trouble in school once in a while and, you know, typical 13-year-old boy stuff. Um, didn't think a whole lot of it. Uh, at 19, I found out he was addicted to painkillers. Uh, the damage that had happened at seven had now turned into chronic pain uh, in spite of chiropractors and doctors and psychologists and everything else. Um, so he was self-medicating. Uh, he overdosed on heroin in 2004 when a dealer apparently tried to kill him. Um, we did the tough love thing, uh, which didn't work out so good for anybody. Um, he recovered. We moved to North Carolina in 2007, and he moved there. We don't really know what happened that last year. All I know is that I saw him getting pale and thin and anxious. Uh, he had a car accident. Uh, he had financial problems, he had physical pain, he had emotional pain. Uh, at 38, you know, well, he was 37 then, I, you can't make him go take care of it. Uh, I encouraged him to do that. I begged him to do that. I said, I'd be happy to pay for it. Yeah, Mom, I'll take care of it. Um, I was, I live here in Minnesota. His dad lives in North Carolina. He lived with his dad. Um, I was headed back as soon as the Super Bowl was over, which we were supposed to be in um, two years ago. And um, I didn't make it home before he died. He, um, <sighs> the night of the supermoon that he was so excited about on the 31st, um, Facebook, Facebook memories come up every day. And today they're a little harsh. Um, he was all excited about that, and his dad works at home and uh, hadn't heard him, heard him snoring that night, which Adam didn't snore. So we're guessing already now that he was in respiratory distress from something he had taken. Uh, we don't know exactly when he died, but his father didn't find him for 15 hours. Uh, and all he will say about it is it was obvious he'd been gone for a long time. And he called me and said, are you driving? And I said, no. And he said, um, you might want to sit down, and I already knew. Somehow, when I had Adam and first looked at him, 
It was like this throwdown challenge. The, the dark eyes and, and mine locked, and he said, what are you going to do with me? <laughs> and I somehow always knew I would lose him. I just didn't know when. I was so aware that he was not mine. I was just so aware of that from moment one. So here was the moment that I had thought I could prepare for, and I dreaded, and I screamed for seven minutes. I threw myself on the floor, and Rich had to listen to that from another state. Um, but a police officer who knew us in um, North Carolina heard it over the radio and hurried to our house and went in the house, and he said, Rich, I'm going to stay here with you until this is done, no matter how many hours it takes. Thank God for Jay. Um, it's amazing to me when I see how we don't know where the corners are in life. We don't know what's around the corners, and we can worry about that. But um, every time I've seen how God goes around the corner and provides who you need and what you need before you get there, um, I know that as, as sure as anything. So no matter what, is going to happen next, I know it's already planned for, and I'll be okay. We'll hear more from the Survivors Panel at the recent Life Support Conference in just a moment. If you'd be interested in possibly hosting a Life Support Conference, please contact Five Stone Media through fivestonemedia.com. Our partners at Five Stone also have a video version of this program available through their website and Facebook page. If you're interested in checking out Ridgewood Church, just go on myrwc.org or follow me on Twitter, at Pastor Paul J. And now, let's return to the panel discussion moderated by Steve Johnson, Five Stones Executive Director. Barb, just talk about the night you went for a drive. It's a really powerful story. Uh, right after I got off the phone with Rich, uh, my mind is shifting between, okay, who do I need to call, what do I need to do, and screaming alternately. Amazing what the brain can do. Um, I realized I had to drive a half hour to my daughter's house. I called her husband and I said, Ivan, Adam is dead. You have to go home. I have to go tell Ashley. Uh, and he said, absolutely. I said, don't tell her. I need to tell her. So I drove to, uh, from Mound to Hopkins which was about a half hour, and as I went down County Road 44, every tree trunk, every power pole said, crash here. You can catch up to Adam. You can go where he is. And the, the assaultive nature of the crazy thoughts that happen, it, I don't know how I stayed on the road other than to think, you know what, my family is traumatized. I can't do this to them. I have to stay here. And I said out loud to Adam, I said, you're gone. And I said, I have to stay with the living. One of the things that we haven't talked about today, and I, I, you know, I hear this from talking to parents, is we are afraid, I'm talking we, those that have not experienced what you've experienced, are afraid to talk about your kids. All right? We're, we're, there's something about, well, I don't want to, bring up Adam's name. I don't want to stir anything up. But what I hear from the parents is what, Kim? 
You want that, right? Oh, absolutely. The the best thing that I remember, and like, like I said, you don't have memory the first year. Things you just remember little snippets. But one of the best things I remember is are people that wrote cards or told us about a memory that they had, a fun memory they had with Eric, because it made me realize that his memory is still there. And people, I still enjoy that. People still to this day will tell me of a memory, and it just brightens up my heart when they do that. So it's real important to. To, 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 uh, we want to know that our, our children, our loved ones, their lives mattered, and they were remembered. And so it's very helpful to do that. Give me, give me a favorite Eric story. You know, at Columbia, he was, uh, he was in a student council, and he, was, he played jazz piano, and he did all of these things on campus. And like Columbia is not exactly a warm and comfortable place, but he was, a, he was called the tall guy that people at Columbia were telling me. He was, a, he was a tall white guy with the afro because he had big hair and he was letting it grow out. And he would hug people. Like at Columbia, that is not usual behavior. And so those memories, uh, and people would come up to us and tell us that uh, he used to just play jazz piano. He was in the jazz piano band. The jazz piano, just on campus, that there'd be an open piano he would play, and people would come down and listen to him and play with him and do things with him. So here's an, here he was in a life that I had had been separated from us. We didn't really know anything. You, you know, kids go off to college, you have no idea what they're doing. We're going to return to the panel discussion next week. We want to offer hope to you if you're going through suffering. You know, I love the term that Paul uses for hardship and suffering in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He said, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Though our trauma and suffering is difficult, it puts us in a fog and sometimes feels like a deep weight on you, remember that it is momentary. It is light compared to the coming glory that will be enjoyed through Christ which will be beyond all comparison. I'm so thankful for this amazing promise of God. And remember, He is always with you. We'll see you next time on Life Support. Thanks for listening to this Life Support podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. You can make a gift now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Life Support, subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and grow the impact of Life Support.